0: Well, welcome to episode 143 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Remington. And with me, the professor, Peter Van Onselen. Pete, g'day. G'day, Hugh. Parliament's
1: back next week.
0: How exciting. Travelling to Canberra for the first time in in a little while.
1: Two weeks of Parliament and it'll be interesting to see just how adversarial or otherwise it is, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. There's much at stake and there's uh, a big agenda. We've already seen almost like a you know, a a backlog of issues that the government wants to get out and across. And uh, it's been a busy little summer. Already not across the aisle so much, but across a table or across a a Zoom link or some such. Peter Dutton is meeting with Anthony Albanese today as we speak at Albo's request to try to sort out if they can get any kind of common ground on the voice because that's uh, in danger of...
1: What do you think of the fact that they're not doing it face-to-face? So Albo is as we speak, I believe, on his way to Canberra from Perth, which he was at yesterday and did a media conference there. He's meeting for dinner tonight with the state premiers and chief ministers, a head of national cabinet, but he's only catching up via video link, as you mentioned, with Peter Dutton in the discussions around The Voice as well as with other participants for that, because Peter Dutton, I believe, is patching in from the Sydney Commonwealth Parliamentary Office. So he's not at home in Brisbane or in Queensland, he's in Sydney for for whatever reason, but he's not in Canberra. I mean, is that on him? Is that on Albo? Should this thing be face-to-face or or do we not care?
0: Well, you know, post-pandemic, everyone's got so used to doing these things remotely, I think they can probably talk out whatever they're going to talk out. The key thing is, is there a genuine will to try to make the voice work or is it more about showboating? What do you think? Well, at the moment, I think the jury's out, but Mm -hmm. there's certainly a big risk. There's a lot of showboating coming.
1: It's going to be interesting to see when Parliament does return next week where the opposition focuses its attacks on the government. I mean, inevitably in our adversarial system, that's what they will do. They will attack the government. But, you know, do they focus in on the voice, for example, if they feel like there's a lack of detail? Do they focus in on problems in Indigenous communities more specifically after the Alice Springs situation? Or uh, do they try to go to the economy and cost of living on Tuesday? We're going to see another interest rate hike by the Reserve Bank. I'd, I'd be willing to bet my house on that.
0: Oh, yes. And uh, there's no question they'll attack on cost of living.
1: Yeah. Well, that's where they think they can win the election, isn't it? As opposed yeah, possibly. To the other but
0: issues. also, to be honest, uh, it, it is, I think, biting in real Australia in a big way. Oh, yeah. And, right. um, you know, in, in a big way and th- there 's not just the fact that I think people have recognized you know huge swathes of people there are people who are kind of immune to interest rate rises, you know they don 't have a mortgage because they're they 're old and wealthy or you know so there's people who who can ride these bumps okay, mm. but there are people who are hanging off everything they're already struggling to make those ends meet, and more rises are coming, and there is the danger if it really gets nasty that jobs start to disappear, and then we've got real trouble, we don't want to see that because those with either good book knowledge or long lives know what it looks like when it happens. Mm. Uh, It is a – it's ugly when people are losing their jobs and they're walking out of houses.
1: And you can't underestimate the, the conundrum of it. We've talked about this before because it is a deliberate design feature of the Reserve Bank putting interest rates up to try and slow the economy. They're trying to slow it down to bring inflation down because the alternative is, is is a sort of potential wage price spiral and there can be all sorts of associated problems with longer term out of control inflation, particularly if it becomes hyperinflation. We don't need to go into that. But they're trying to slow things down but not wanting to do it to the extent that it forces us into recession or that it forces unemployment to rise too steeply. I think they accept it's an awful term when you're talking about people's lives. But I do think being real politic about this, they are accepting the RBA that you have to break a few eggs to make an omelette. And that sounds brutal, but they are thinking at that big picture level. And there is they, they know that they are causing pain to a lot of people. And as you say, you know, it, it's easy for some to write it out, but you don't have to have a home loan to be suffering under these interest rate rises because they are coming about because of inflation, which means standard, you know, sort of necessary goods on a daily basis are expensive for people who either do or don't have a mortgage. And even if you don't have a mortgage, the mortgage holder who owns the property that you're renting is probably putting your rent up as part of the inflationary pressures as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's it's easy to forget if you're in even just the comfortable middle class, how brutal, just how brutal this is mm. for everyone, not just for people sitting comfortably in the middle class.
0: I also think the, the comfortable middle class is shrinking as a proportion. Mm. You know, there's a, there's still a big middle class in Australia, but it's getting increasingly less comfortable. There are people, you know, this is one of the mysteries about it, and that you, you can look at the data that says that our savings rates went up a huge amount during the pandemic, that there's a bunch of extra money we've got in bank accounts that we didn't have before the pandemic, and that these are, are you know, details that can be got out of Treasury and RBA figures and all the rest of it. But whether that's how people feel about their, their own circumstances is another thing. And of course, people in the, who've bought properties in the last uh, year, year and a bit, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly those... Encouraged
1: are, to do so by government policies, yeah, even.
0: For the 2.41% average mortgage in April of last year are being squeezed like hell. And that's the tool that the Reserve Bank has, is to crimp people's spending or remove the available money for them to spend to bring down inflation, and and really that could be said to be simply the punishing of the people.
1: Who've- well, there's no there's no harmless way yeah. to get inflation back under control. That's the that's the dilemma. Not just for the Reserve Bank when it is taking responsibility for monetary policy. It's also the dilemma for politicians who are arms length from that as they think about how are we going to set fiscal policy. In other words, how are we going to frame the budget? You know, do we want to be applying the accelerator at the same time that the Reserve Bank are applying the brake to the car by spending and therefore feeding inflation when they're trying to bring it under control? Or, is there a way, or, or do we do nothing, which is not really good enough because you're a politician and people are hurting? Or, and this is what the government is trying to do, do we target our spending in ways that we hope help the most needy without putting too much inflationary pressure into the mix when the RBA are trying to bring inflation under control. And, of course, as you well know, Hugh, the the hard part about weaving your way through that if you're a government setting your fiscal strategy is that it's very hard to send targeted financial support to the people who need it most without having inflationary pressure because, by definition, the people who need it the most spend it. And if they spend it, that immediately puts pressure on inflation so it's, it, yeah you, you, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't quit your job to take over Jim Chalmers' job, put it that way.
0: No, it's interesting because Jim Chalmers has uh, sat away from the job that is his daily job to do some musing over summer and uh, with his essay about how government needs to change the way it, even what its fundamental ethos is, mm. uh, with relation to the market. I'm intrigued to get your view on this. It, it seems... To me, as if he's not saying anything particularly new, there are very few unfettered markets in Australia, all have some level of government regulation and involvement. What do you think he's trying to say?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Ten-page, well, I mean, with some adverts in between. uh, Ten-page, 6,000-word there about essay in the monthly, following in the relatively well-trodden steps of Kevin Rudd doing similar after the GFC a couple of extra years after that. I think Wayne Swan did one similarly also for the Monthly when he was Treasurer. And, of course, we know Jim Chalmers was Chief of Staff to Wayne Swan uh, before moving into politics himself. What do I think of the essay? Look, I I want to start by being briefly positive about it before having a, a couple of goes at it. The macro positivity towards it is that at least he's thinking about things and at least he's putting pen to paper and writing about it. The fact that it's something relatively unusual or exceptional that one of our senior politicians bothers to churn out a 6,000 word thought piece about anything tells us everything about the lack of thought that our modern politicians who have become very functionary in their role have the time there's, there's to There's no grand
0: talk. intellectual tradition is, is there little. or there has been for a fair while
1: Very little <laughs> and I mean I question how many of them could frankly do it and get published if it was done by a blind peer review for example and I probably question whether this one might have been published if it was done under blind peer review as well which, which takes me to the criticism. Yeah, I, I'm glad he's doing it. And Jim Chalmers is no deal. You know, he's got a PhD in political science. He's written other things before. But what worries me about the piece, at least he's thinking and at least he's doing it, but there's not a lot of substance to it. And I'm not exactly sure what his market is here. I'm going to write a couple of articles this Saturday and next in the Oz about this, but I'm starting, I'm only going to get to the economics of it in a little over a week's time. I want to start with what I actually really think he's doing here, which is he's using a platform as a sop to the important voters when his time comes to become leader of the Labor Party. Yes, I'm not suggesting he doesn't believe in the economics and the arguments he's making, but the reason it's largely vague and the reason that it's hard to pin down beyond the superficial is because I think its design intent, and I don't know this, this is my guess, is this is an early pitch by a Treasurer who wants to be leader one day, not for voters, not for the wider left, which it might appeal to in some of its economic thoughts, but it's a pitch to Labor's members who now have a 50% say in who becomes leader. And it is very hard for right-wing figures to get elected in that new environment of the Labor leadership rules. It's one of the reasons that Bill Shorten only just beat Anthony Albanese when he had very few people in the party room, was because Albo won the popular vote back in 2013, 60-40. It's the reason that Albo was untouchable after the devastation of the 2019 defeat, because once Plibersek exited the field and he was the only left-wing candidate, the Bowens or the Chalmers or the Clare O'Neill for generational change, none of these were ever going to be able to muscle up with that membership vote. And I think Jim Chalmers is savvy and I think he wants to be Labour leader one day and I think he knows to do that. He needs to signify or signal to that part of the party membership that he's one of them. And I I think he does believe it, by the way. He's a disciple of Wayne Swan more than Paul Keating, I would argue, from his time staffing for him as opposed to writing his doctorate about Paul Keating. So I think that's what this was mostly about. It was him sending a signal to ordinary Labor members who will get a 50% say in who the next leader is. This will be years from now. It may not even happen for many electoral cycles, but he wants to be well-placed for that, and I think that this is him starting to lay the markers for that. And the reason, Hugh, that it is as vague as it is is because he's not quite sure where that goes yet, and that's fair enough because it's going to be a long time before he has to put meat on the bones of this as a leader and, in the meantime, as a treasurer. Well, he can have some ideas. Albo may agree or disagree with some of these broad brush strokes. But ultimately, he's beholden to his prime minister and his cabinet.
0: It's interesting. I think it's a fascinating insight into how the process might work. And it might explain some of that non, uh, going to use a Rudd term, specificity about it, because, you know, if you'd put out a statement that he wants death taxes or something else, you know, he knows that'll get in the back file, any kind of policy proposal or even a broad idea that might later on turn out to be a stinker will always be held against yep. him. So, he's, so there's going to be nothing in there.
1: Just to be clear, we need death taxes. It is an absolute joke that we don't have them. I'm not advocating them as I hear people falling over listening to this without finding other tax cuts. But I don't know about you, Hugh, but I can't think of a better time to be taxed than when I'm dead. I'd rather be taxed when I'm dead than while I'm alive because it means I've got more money to spend while I'm alive. And sure, my kids and others... Whoever would end up getting that money will get a little bit less. But I used to do this in undergrad when I taught first year politics. I'd ask the class, what do you think is the ethos of Australia? And it was always egalitarianism was where we ended. We're an egalitarian society. Then you posit to these 18 year olds, what about if we get an introduction of death duties happening then or abolish inheritance altogether and they look aghast at it? Well, the problem they think is that it that's a theoretically nice idea, but you can't do it in practice. People find ways around it. Then I press the button on my PowerPoint that reveals that the overwhelming majority of the world have death taxes. And yeah, there's problems along the way, but there's problems with every tax policy setting. We're one of the few countries that doesn't have it. And of course, the reason we don't have it is because Sir Joe Bielke-Peterson abolished it in Queensland and all the wrinklies moved up there to retire. So every other state had to abolish it as well. We should have a federal tax, which is a death duty. It would raise good revenue. It can replace other taxes. That's the important thing. It doesn't have to increase the tax burden, I would rather pay tax when I'm dead than when I'm alive.
0: Would it make us more egalitarian? I think it would.
1: I mean, I don't want to oversell that ideologically. I think it is one of a multitude of contributing factors that would make us more egalitarian. The super rich usually find a way around these things. And that's the point, isn't it? Well you forever try to deal with the super rich, but they find a way around everything. And you just have to kind of, if you like, deal with that. But they they do that with income taxes, They, they, they go offshore, they do all sorts of things. Governments are forever chasing the super rich, but that's not a reason not to have death duties because they're already chasing the super rich with every other tax that they say is a cornerstone of our system. Dr. Andrew Lee, who's got a PhD in economics from Harvard, no less, he merely floated the idea of death duties in a book he wrote long before he even entered politics from memory when he was a professor at ANU about them as one of a number of new tax options that could be looked at. And then that was used against him as the years rolled by. It was used against the Labor Party as though it was Labor Party policy. They ruled it out more quickly than they thought for more than three minutes about the concept. Death duties are a policy that countries that have conservative governments have right around the world. Can't we at least debate it? And the answer, unfortunately, is no, because of the nature of our silly adversarial system.
0: Also, in the time of the bank of mum and dad, which is increasingly an institutional function of Australian life, I think there's a feeling where in this generation, those who say have the kids who are now leaving university, say those in their 50s and 60s, see that it is not as easy for that generation to go in and buy houses As it was for them, you know, I I bought my first house for $40,000 and it wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't much more than what myself and my then girlfriend, our annual income, added up to the price of the house. It wasn't expensive. It wasn't a burden. I had two houses by the time I was 27. It was easy and I wasn't well paid. And that's just simply not true. And so part of the argument against death tax, the kind of the emotional argument, is that I want my kids to have at least the chance I got. And given that getting into property in capital cities is bloody tough, unless you've got some help, you sort of feel as if you owe it to your kids and the kids feel as it might be owed to them. Oh, I don't doubt all of that. That they get the maximum. And, and that's part, partly what I think, you know, the world has changed a bit since those death taxes were introduced. But given
1: that only a third of Australians even own property, that means that two thirds of Australians, by definition, are missing out on that.
0: No, no, no a third have their property completely owned. So then there's about another third who are paying it off at any given time. So have mortgages and at some stage will presumably pay off a house. I think that's my understanding. Well, yeah,
1: whatever the numbers, there's a, there's a, a very sizable chunk, whether it's a majority or a, min- a sizable minority who don't even own property, right? So what about their kids? You're exacerbating the inequality between even the middle class and the lower class, which, which used to be, it used to be easy to traverse your way into the middle class in Australia relative to other countries. That's changing. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to get into the super rich class everywhere, including now in Australia. But, I mean, to answer that, I mean, I don't disagree. I mean, my kids would be aghast if they didn't get their inheritance there. They're basically structuring their lives around it. And no one's saying that they don't get something. You know, we're not talking about abolishing inheritance, but death duties, I mean, America has them. Britain has them. They're a common feature right around the world. As for Australian property prices, some of that is unavoidable, but, but I don't know why the family home isn't taxed. I think it should be, again, to replace other taxes so that you bring them down and it also impacts housing. Part of the problem, of course, this is a much longer discussion, is that you're trying to unscramble an egg. It's, it's like superannuation reform with whether it's taxed on the way in or the way out and how once it's set and once people are already vested in the market as it currently is, to put downward pressure on property prices or to retax the structures, the same as having more taxes on super when people have planned for their retirement in particular ways it's just so bloody hard right what's the saying that Turnbull always likes to say you know I wouldn't start from here is the advice that the Irishman received when traveling I mean it's 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 brutal but can't we have these
0: debates at least takes courage to have these debates let's take a quick break (laughs) a lot to talk about Uh, back in just a second Welcome back. This is episode 143 of The Professor and the Hack. And I want to talk about Medicare reform because this is another big issue that's coming up. And we had the Prime Minister in WA this week where they're announcing that one, with the Health Minister, Mark Butler, they're announcing that uh, the starting point for the new urgent GP care clinics are going to be in WA. It comes as the Productivity Commission said that Australians three million Australians made unnecessary trips to hospitals last year. That is to say, they presented to hospital instead of going to a GP. Something is deeply broken about the whole primary healthcare system, and the government recognises that, and that's why they're talking about some reform.
1: That doesn't even surprise me as well. That's part of the problem here. To, To hear that statistic doesn't surprise me knowing what we know about people presenting at emergency, for example, rather than going to a GP. Yeah,
0: yeah. ambulance ramping. Ambulances all lined up with people sitting in ambulances, ambulances that can't go off to the next emergency. It's not working. I've got my kids, you know, back and reorganised, trying to get them off to, you know, a couple of things that they've got to get done. Went down to get a GP uh, appointment. Nine days is the wait to get a GP appointment for one of my kids. Nothing urgent or anything, so I can live with that. But that's a kind of a weird system. And I'll give you another little personal anecdote which shows some of the difficulty. I'm a redhead born in the tropics. I have routine skin checks and I've had more than a few. Hugh, slip, slop, slap, for God's sake. Too late for me. So therefore, I have a dermatologist appointment, which I have to go and do. So I came back and thought, I'm a bit overdue with this. I should go and do it. I got the referral from the GP to go and see the guy I've seen 100 times. And the place where I've gone to, he's reduced his hours there and he's he's opened up a new clinic. So I think, all right, so the, the new pla- so the old place, so we can, he can see you in June. So I, thought, mm. so I thought, well, he's got this new clinic, I'll ring them. And they said, Yeah, we can take you tomorrow, but you'll need a new referral. I said, I've got it, I've got a referral. Why do you need why do you need a new referral? Well, here's the thing. It says it's to the same doctor, right? But the address, the address at the top was to one clinic and they say I need a new referral with the address of the new clinic. Is that right? You, you need a new referral? Well, the, the point is, is that they were insisting to me that it was right.
1: So this is the, the specialist is saying, sorry, yeah, we specialist. need you to go get another. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, so the specialist is saying, I'm thinking, oh. And what offended me was not the inconvenience of me going back to a GP, but what a ridiculous further burden on a GP mm. that I'm going to go in, A, hey, I'd have to delay the appointment at the dermatologist because I've got the nine-day wait to get to the GP. I then go into the GP to get them to write out the same referral with a different, not even a different doctor, a different address at the top to meet some requirement, it appeared, out of Medicare. And then I started to get my steam up because I thought, if you're waiting nine days to get, what if you're a woman with a lump in your breast and you're worried as hell? You're trying to get into the GP and you're being told, well, you'll wait for this amount of time, partly because the GP's clogged up with people like me who through entirely bureaucratic, non-clinical, non-outcome-related requirements is taking up that GP's time to get an address changed at the top of the bloody referral. And this
1: all goes to the reforms that they're looking at. This goes
0: absolutely to the structural grit in the wheels of our primary healthcare system because we know that the choke point is the GP, getting to a GP. And because you can't get to a GP, people turn up to their hospitals. And because the GP is no longer bulk billing, which is increasingly the case across Australia, people who can't afford the gap turn up to the hospitals, and the hospitals can't cope, so they start to fall over. So I put it out on Twitter, and I got a lot of responses back from, among other things, a lot of GPs who say it's bollocks. You don't need to do it. So did you go back and tell your specialist? W- yes, yeah, so I went to the specialist when I, when I went in there. The people that are the nicest people in the world, I don't give them a hard time, and an excellent dermatologist. And so I, I showed them some of these responses, including links to government you know, websites, you know, you know, the, the information. Did you get your appointment? Got the appointment, got the thing sorted out. While I was in there, the practice manager at the new clinic went through this Twitter feed and all the responses and came out and said, well, I agree that you know, we'll do you with the wrong address at the top. So what, so what was their concern? They're, I think the concern is is that part of the reforms that are coming for Medicare, is going to be a much more, I don't want to use the word aggressive, I want to say assertive auditing by health authorities, the Department of Health, of practices that are happening in the medical system. And I think that quite a lot of medical practitioners are concerned about being audited, a bit like a tax audit, and they want to make sure that some people thoroughly deserve to be audited because there's some rorting that's now baked into the system. So we're told anecdotally but what they want to do is to make sure that every single box is ticked that there can be no possible area that on some technicality the address being the wrong address at the top they're going to wind up being hammered and so their safe position is to say to everyone you must bring a referral with not just the doctor's name which in fact you don't have to have a doctor's name by the way.
1: Mm, Yeah, I was going to say that actually because I've had referrals where they just leave it untitled so you can go find someone who's actually available.
0: So there's that But also, the address at the top is, you know, you can get over that, I'm told. Uh, But it shows that there's a kind of, if if the people in the system don't understand the system or are fearful of the system of getting it or of getting it wrong, you know, and then multiply that by the, you know, by the millions of people who are going off to, to doctors and specialists in the course of any given year, there is something that desperately, desperately needs reform, clarity, means to save money, but also to just make the whole process less frictionless. And fortunately, I didn't go back to a GP. I didn't clog up a GP's time. Because it's the GPs are the, are the issue. We've talked about this mm. before a little bit. But the, it's, it's, that, that choke point has now got out of control.
1: Well, I mean, look, uh, so our, our local GP is, I mean, they're not taking new customers, if that's the right word, yeah. new clients.
0: I think we call them patients. Patients, yes. <laughs>
1: tells you everything about one's mindset. Uh, but yeah, they're not taking new patients. So the first question when you ring up to make a booking for yourself or your family is, are you an existing patient? And you just reminded me, they don't say customer or client. And you know, we say yes, and, and we can get a booking pretty easily at this particular practice. But this practice um, has, an, I've noticed an ever increasing gap. It's quite expensive. And they used to actually exempt children, which they don't. Anymore, which I've also certainly noticed when you've got the bits and bobs that you have to go in there for your children for. Uh, and, you know, this is a you know, pretty affluent practice, and, and we're, we're fortunate, other than having to pay for it, that you can get those quick access points. But even then, you know, it's still very busy and, and those gaps are, are big. And, and we have rare healthcare needs, you know, touch wood at the moment in our family. But, you know, if you've got regular healthcare needs, you know, the idea that you can't even get in to see a GP for an extended period of time in a lot of places, most places, much less scour the modern equivalent of the Yellow Pages to try to find one that still does bulk billing, which would only add to the time frame, no doubt. It's just, yeah, it's, it's ripe for reform.
0: Yeah. And worse across the regions and so oh, on. Absolutely. E- even arriving in Canberra, when I, I moved to Canberra in 2009, with young, uh, one young kid on foot, as they say, and my wife pregnant, heavily pregnant at that stage, we we did that thing. We started to look for doctors. We rang around and we got the same thing. Sorry, our books are full. Sorry, our books are full. And we're thinking, that, that, that's unbelievable. You can't actually find a doctor in this town. Eventually you did. But I'm sure that in, you know, people who might be listening to this in regional Australia or, or have moved to regional Australia in the pandemic period, as we know, I think this is, you know, the, the pain and difficulty of, of getting to doctors, paying for doctors and getting that system given that for a period it seemed to work pretty well in Australia, in fact, it was the envy of the world, I think is the reform is timely. Well,
1: I was just going to say, I actually still think it is the envy of the world, which isn't about our system being bulletproof. It's clearly not. It's, it's a lesser of evils compared to the systems around a lot of the world, not everywhere. And, and this is part of the global problem. But here in Australia, you know, everything we're talking about is why finding alternative ways, as long as they get it right, finding alternative ways, to take pressure off GPs and to restructure the process, having you know, access points through the system of Medicare to nurses, pharmacists, you name it, this is all good as an area to be looked at. Uh, they just have to make sure that they get it right.
0: Yeah. And one of the points being is that the population has aged since Medicare mm. came in, where the, then the average age was 30 or something and people's average life expectancy was 75. And most people went to the doctor with acute issues. They'd fallen over or they had a, you know, a tummy ache or, you know, something, something had happened. Kids falling off bikes and so on. Whereas now the whole nature of it, the average life expectancy is 84, higher for women. The average population age is over 37. And what people are doing, part of the reason we're living longer is we've got better management of our later years during which time we fall into a whole bunch of complex, as they call them, comorbidities. And it's the management of that is so time-consuming on GP and the healthcare system. So that's part of the strain point. So, you know, we've got a really interesting political cycle with big issues being dealt with. The government will say it's because the coalition slept for nine years. That's what they'll say. But whatever happens, it is true. Health is going to be one of them. We've seen a hint from Mark that There's a big announcement coming around the thousands of people who've been sitting on temporary protection visas, unable to get permanent residency since they came here by boat as part of the Pacific solution, some who have no visas at all and who are stateless essentially living in Australia, and that they're going to try to resolve that. There's a lot of housekeeping coming up, and not much of it is easy. And, And just
1: to bring that back, to where we started as well, talking about Jim Jalmers. People forget this, but Labor's only been in power six of the last 26 years. And that's actually not that different to the era of when Gough Whitlam won and they'd been out of power in 1972 since 1949. It's not that different. And it's easy to forget that because you had that interlude with Rudd and Gillard, as dysfunctional as some of the politicking was during that time. It was a brief interlude and it was a long Howard government that became a long... Three prime ministerial coalition government after Rudd and Gillard, so they've only been in power six of 26 years. It's not unreasonable to therefore assume that they're going to look to do some pretty radical reshaping. I guess what's interesting about it is that they suggested that they weren't when they were campaigning to win the last election because they were so fearful of losing again after having a radical agenda that saw them get undone in 2019. But I I think listeners should reflect on that. They've only been in power six of 26 years. It's not a big shock to me when I remember that to think that that means that a Labor government is going to perhaps look to do things a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, although Albanese has told his own troops he wants to be at least a two-term government and this is at a time when governments around the world are tending to get old fast. Uh, Leaders change faster. There's a much more unstable period, uh, which I would put down largely to the digitisation of communications and the ability for people to complain more vociferously and to tear things down. I think that's the age we're living in. We'll leave some of this over for our conversations next time, by which time the first sitting week will be pretty much complete. Enjoy Canberra next week, Peter. Yeah, talk to you then. See you then.
1: You have been listening to
0: The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.